You're listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Uh, we continue our series this morning, Family Ties, and our passage today comes from the Gospel of Luke. And you can turn with, there with me if you'd like. When the uh, Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, we're going to begin in verse 49. This passage of Scripture, I think, is a difficult one. Parts of it, I think, really speak to us, uh, maybe more than we're prepared to hear. So it starts off, I, this is Jesus speaking, I came to bring fire to the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. I have a baptism with which to be baptized, and what stress I am under until it is completed. Do you think that I have come to bring peace to the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, five in one household will be divided, three against two and two against three. And they will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you immediately say it's going to rain, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? Let's pray. God in heaven, we love you. And we're grateful for your love for us. Lord, we want to love you more. And we pray that your spirit would rest upon us afresh. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, we sanctify this time. We set it aside. And we ask, Lord, that you would sanctify it so that we might hear you. In the name of Jesus, in the presence of the Spirit, amen. So in some ways, I think this passage is just for us. He talks about wind from the south and scorching heat. How many of you feel like you know what scorching heat is? Yes? Any of you kind of grow up in other parts of the country or world where it's not quite this hot all the time? Right, I grew up in the mountains in Virginia, and I had no idea what I was getting into when I moved to Florida. I mean, we had visited a few times because Angela's parents lived over in New Smyrna, but man, just month after month, day after day. You know, it's 90-something, and the heat index is 100-and-something. And if there's no cloud cover, it doesn't take very long before you're just oppressed. Like you step outside and you feel like you stepped into an oven, right? Like the heat is coming at you from all directions. It's coming down. It's coming from the sides. It's coming from the, you know, from the bottom up. Over at the college, when I first got there, there was a bit more green space and there were these small concrete uh, sidewalks and they replaced them with these large, wide kind of brick uh, sidewalks. So now I'm in like a brick oven, <laughs> you know? Those things really hold heat, if you know what I mean. Does anybody feel this? Yes, of course you do. And then those of us that are fortunate enough to wear glasses, you know, you, you step out of a building and they fog up. 
and then you get into the car and then they're better. And then you step out of your car and they fog up again. Like when Jesus says, you feel the south wind and you think, ah, oh, it's going to be a scorching heat. We, Floridians, we know scorching heat. But then he also talked about seeing a rain cloud and knowing it was going to rain. So when is it going to rain? Like June through October, <laughs> right? That's when it's going to rain. So I came from, again, a place where we had four seasons, uh, winter, uh, summer, spring, and fall. Not in that order. Here, there's two seasons, wet and dry. You know? I mean, temperature-wise, there's hot and there's very hot. <laughs> but in terms of precipitation, it's either wet or dry, and we are in the rainy season. We all know this. About 3 o'clock, the sky gets dark, like it's 8 or 9 o'clock, and you think to yourself, I should take a long walk. <laughs> or maybe it's a good time to wash the car. Or I could, like, get the lawn mowed. Of course not, right? Because it's going to rain. Like, you know it's going to rain. You know it's going to be hot, and you know it's going to rain. And Jesus says, you're good at this. And I think, well, yeah, I am. I know it's going to be hot today and tomorrow and the next day, and I know it's going to rain today and tomorrow and the next day. Jesus was right. I'm good. We're good at telling the weather. But then he says, we're not so good at understanding the present times. The times, the prophet, Bob Dylan told us, are a-changing. And we're not so good at telling time or telling what's going on. As things change, we don't seem to be able to understand how to appropriate appropriately. Like how, how to understand what does the gospel look like here. We seem to be tied to something else, something other that doesn't seem to fit so well. Like we read this passage and <clears throat> out of context, if I were to say, Jesus said, have I not come to bring peace? The obvious answer would be, yes. Very good, you got it right. <laughs> have I not come to bring peace? I mean, Jesus is the Prince of Peace. right? Jesus is, is the, the, the non-violent, the the one who calms the storms, uh, the one who settles the wrongs, the one who makes wrong right. Have you sinned? Well, you can be forgiven. Um, are you on the outs? Well, you can be included. Jesus is the one who comes. He comes for the lowly and for the meek. He seems to have come for us all. But Jesus says here, not that. He says, do you think that I've come to bring peace on the earth? No. Oh, man. I, I come to bring rather division. Three against two and two against three. Father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother. Mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He did the best on that one. <laughs> Jesus, you knocked that one out of the park. I don't know about these others, though. What in the world is Jesus talking about? So sometimes I hear people talk about Jesus as though Jesus can be love and Jesus is going to kill you and send you to hell. And somehow they'll say, well, Jesus is love, 
But Jesus is also just. As if to say, Jesus can be just and it can be different than love. And that's just a paradox. That, my friends, I think is wrong. God is love and God is just. But God's justice in no way impinges on His love. That God's form of justice is a form of justice that is in perfect communion with God's love. When God is just, God is not just distributing um, punishment in order to maintain some high sense of holiness. God's justice, again, is not punitive. It's not for punishment. God's justice is restorative. God's justice does what God's love does. It makes wrong things right. It restores to us those things that are broken. Even ourselves. That's what the coming of God does. And if we read a passage of Scripture like this, or any other passage of Scripture, and we think that somehow in the end, God is against us, or God's going to destroy, God's justice is not destructive. God's justice is restorative. Just like God's love. And that's what we often don't get right. Like Jesus told us, you're not very good at understanding these things. And we read this text and we make God out to be this kind of earthly judge or Lord or master that's going to come with power and destroy. And we think, well, yes, God is the ultimate judge and therefore there'll be ultimate judgment. And once again, Jesus is right. He's just as right about how we get that wrong as he is right about how we can get the weather right. We are just as bad at sometimes anticipating what God is doing as we are good at just telling, hey, it's in the summer and we live in Florida and it's going to be hot and it's going to rain. And, and that's exactly what he tells us. He says, you can't, you can't understand the times. So, so what is Jesus about? Well, Jesus understands the times, and he tells us here. He says, I have a baptism with which to be baptized, and what stress I am under until it's completed. I have a baptism with which to be baptized, and what stress I am under until it's completed. Here comes Jesus, the judge of the earth, and he's going to make things right. But he's not going to make things right by killing all of us who have sinned. Just curious, how many of you have sinned? Show of hands, it's okay. Well, self-confession is good for the soul. Jesus isn't coming to kill all those who have sinned. But he is coming as judge. And in the process, you know what he's going to do? He's going to be, a, he's going to be baptized. But he's not, here, his baptism that he's speaking of is not his baptism of John the Baptist in water. It's the cross. Jesus is going to be baptized, and he is stressed out until it's completed. He, he realizes. He looks at the times. And, and politically, it would have looked like this. Jesus is like, I've come to announce the kingdom of God. Repent and believe in the kingdom. And they're like, well... <clears throat> Is this like a religious Messiah who's coming to establish the kind of right worship in the temple? 
And Jesus is like, no. Is this a a militant Messiah who's going to come and kick out the Romans? And Jesus is like, no. Well, this is like an economic Messiah, one who's going to kind of free us from the uh, oppression of our poverty. And Jesus is like, "Mm, not exactly. Jesus looks around and is like, look, if you keep doing what you're doing, the Romans are going to destroy you. In a very practical way, they could not interpret the times. And I think we too struggle with this. We struggle with how we might interpret the times. I think we often get politics wrong. And we often get economics wrong. And we often struggle to think, how is my Christian life and the gospel supposed to fit with the rest of this stuff? And I've got news for you. If somehow it doesn't look like Jesus who is sacrificing for others, then it's not right. There there is only one way. There's, There's not an alternative. And the way of Jesus is the one and only way. Jesus has walked that way. And if we want to be his disciples, we too have to walk that way. We have to find the way of surrender. We have to find the way of sacrifice. We have to find the way of forgiveness. We have to find the way of mercy. That is what it would mean to interpret the times. So find those folks who are being marginalized by your society, by our society. Find the ones who are lost. Find the ones who are in need. Those who are hungry, or who are thirsty, or who are naked, who are a stranger, who are sick, who are in prison. Right? Find the other. Find the alien, the immigrant, the stranger. Reach out to them and you'll be Jesus. You'll be the presence of Jesus. Sometimes, you know, the epistles refer to us as the body of Christ. Well, how does the body of Christ live in the world? It lives in the world the way Jesus lived in the world. Look at you. Look at us. So good at anticipating the heat. So good at anticipating the rain. But not being able to interpret the times. The times are changing. We move from generation to generation. Parents have to find a way to get out of the way and let their children live. Look. I know we'd all love to make all the decisions for our children, but it just doesn't work that way. They grow up. They make decisions themselves. You can love them. You can give them guidance. But eventually, God willing, they become independent people. It's the same way with our families. We love our families. But we can't dictate to our families who they'll be, what they'll believe. We don't get to choose that. What we can choose, though, is to be like Jesus. To be the one who sacrifices. To be the one who stands in the gap. To be the one who understands the times. So this this is all kind of lofty, right? It's kind of theologically, I think, correct, but... 
somewhat um, sophisticated. That you, you have a text where Jesus is saying, I've, have I come to bring peace? No. Well, what does that mean? Because it doesn't seem to fit with what else we know, so we kind of throw our hands up. Or we say, well, Jesus, Jesus is also sometimes for violence. No. No, Jesus isn't. This, this, I believe, is the interpretation of this passage. When Jesus says, you don't get it, this is what I'm up against. I think this is how we read it. But that still begs a question for me. What would that look like in my life? How, how might I live in a way that does understand the times and responds to the times in a way that is faithful to Jesus? So, in thinking about that, I was thinking about the fruit of the Spirit. There's a card that was handed out as you were coming in. If you don't have one, I'd like for you to raise your hand because I'd like for you to be able to, to take it with you. Just keep your hand up and and they're going to make their way around. So on one side is simply the graphic for the series, Family Ties. And on the other side, we see two lists here. On the left are the fruit of the Spirit. And on the right are things that I think we sometimes substitute for the fruit of the Spirit. So I'll say this. These are making, they're making their way around. Tolerance is not a fruit of the Spirit, but love is. Happiness is not a fruit of the Spirit, but joy is. Conflict is not a fruit of the Spirit, but peace is. Ambition is not a fruit of the Spirit, but patience is. Niceness is not a fruit of the Spirit, My mom would be surprised to hear that. But kindness is. Politeness is not a fruit of the Spirit, but goodness is. Loyalty is not a fruit of the Spirit, but faithfulness is. Passivity is not a fruit of the Spirit, but gentleness is. And heresy hunting, that is, trying to point out everyone else's theological errors, is not a fruit of the Spirit, but self-control is. So we've written it on the, on the card with the greater than sign, that love is greater than tolerance. Tolerance is uh, civic virtue. And to a certain degree, I want all of us to practice that in society. Like, I believe we should tolerate people who are different than us, right? You should tolerate your neighbor. You should tolerate the person who is of a different political persuasion or party. You should tolerate someone who's of a different kind of, they like a different um, college football team, you know. You should tolerate the other. That's true. But it's not a fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit calls us to love. And love is greater than tolerance. If you're going to love the other, you're not simply tolerating them. You're, you're, you're sacrificing for them. You're caring for them. You're wanting to provide for them. 
And tolerance might be a high enough goal for our society, but it is an insufficient goal for us. How will you know whether or not you're interpreting the times correctly? Well, if you're just tolerating other people, you're not interpreting the times well. You have to love them. And, and when you do, then you're interpreting the times. Happiness and joy. Joy is greater than happiness. We often seek after our passions. In fact, I've often been taught that I should be passionate. Like, be passionate about something. You know, the, the word passion comes from the Latin word for suffering. So, so be suffering for something. Well, that, that might make some sense, that, that I should suffer for the sake of, of a good deed or suffer for the sake of a, a good cause. But we get that sometimes we have kind of negative passions, anger, fear, right? And so we try to avoid those. But we kind of latch on to positive passions, like happiness. But I think our positive passions are just as dangerous as our negative passions. That is, we, we don't think about it that way, right? But if we're following after just what makes us happy, what amuses us, what entertains us, it's, it's basically like an addictive order, right? We're just seeking after those things. And we're not actually looking for the, the need. We're not actually responding to, to the suffering. So happiness is fine. Sometimes it comes and sometimes it doesn't. But joy is the fruit of the Spirit. Peace and conflict. This is a tough one. So I've often imagined that peace was simply the absence of conflict. So that if we didn't have conflict, therefore we had peace. But the absence of peace is not the same thing, or excuse me, the absence of conflict is not the same thing as peace. Think of this. You have a family, and the father's got a bad temper. And so the, the poor wife and children know when dad gets home, things better be quiet and in order. Because if there's not, there's going to be hell to pay. Right? He's going to kick the dog because, you know, the boss got, you know, fussed at him. He's going to yell at the kids. And so people have learned to compensate for dad's bad temper. So when dad gets home, it's quiet. That's peace and quiet. That's not peace and justice. Just because we're quiet doesn't mean we have peace. True peace is not simply the absence of conflict. It's the presence of reconciliation. It's the presence of justice. It's the presence of making things right. Yeah? And that's a fruit of the Spirit. Peace is a fruit of the Spirit. The absence of conflict is just a pseudo form of peace. Ambitions and patience. Ambition. That's another one that I'd always been taught that I should have ambition. Right? Don't let the grass grow under your feet. Get up and do something. Be ambitious. If you want it, go after it. But there's a problem with that. Is that unchecked ambition just feeds our ego. It, it makes us want to make me into something. 
Like, ambition is an okay virtue if you just want to live in this world. But it's going to make you into less of who you can be. Because ultimately, who you can be, you will find when you set your ego aside and you're just patient and wait on the Lord. Patience is a fruit of the Spirit. Niceness and kindness. This is a tough one for us Southerners, right? Because we have our Southern sensibilities. Being nice is, you know, who we are. We open the door for people. We speak to them. We wave, right? Growing up, again, in the mountains, to drive past someone and not wave at them would have been unthinkable. Do you know them? Well, no. I don't know them. But they're going by on the road, so I'm waving at them. Right? We're nice. There's nothing wrong with being nice, but it's less than kindness. I can be nice to you and still mistreat you. I can be nice, but not actually deal with the injustice that you're suffering. Right? I can be nice, but not, you know, not really be kind. And kindness is a fruit of the Spirit. This is related to the next one, politeness and goodness. Goodness is greater than politeness. Again, in our Southern sensibilities, we've learned to be polite. And I'm not anti-politeness. I'm just opposed to treating politeness as some high standard. I think it's a low standard. I think goodness is the standard that we should look for. And it's not that I think any of these are things that we just generate from within ourselves by just our sheer will of trying to do it. I believe it's that when we lean into Jesus, when we spend time with God, when we pray and attend church and and read scripture and interpret it rightly, following Jesus in the way that Jesus lived, trusting in Jesus and the work that he's done and the baptism that he was baptized in, these things then just grow out of us. Loyalty and faithfulness. Loyalty. Let me tell you, I was taught to be loyal. Sir, yes, sir. If, if anything, loyalty was this ultimate virtue. Like, always, always be loyal. The problem when loyalty is raised to an end instead of a means is that it's perfectly at home in authoritarian and totalitarian circumstances. Loyalty as an ultimate end is perfectly fine if you're a fascist or if you're a Nazi. And if it's perfectly fine there, it ought not be perfectly fine here. What we're called to is faithfulness. And faithfulness is greater than loyalty. Because faithfulness sometimes knows that in order to be faithful, we sometimes have to be disloyal. Our faithfulness is to Christ. And Christ's own faithfulness is what's making the whole thing work anyway. Passivity and gentleness. 
Passivity is often misunderstood. So people think that, well, Jesus, you know, Jesus was nonviolent, so we should be nonviolent, or that people who are, if people are nonviolent, then how, to, how come they're marching down the street? <laughs> you know, that was a critique against uh, Dr. Martin Luther King. That's right. He said nonviolence, and then they marched in the streets of Birmingham. And then people said, well, wait a minute. If you're really for nonviolence, why are you marching? Because you know when you march, it's going to incite violence. Dogs are going to be released. Fire hoses are going to be turned on. You know, uh, batons are going to be wielded. So if you're really for nonviolence, you shouldn't march. But that's, that's an idea of passivity, P-A-S-S-I-V-I-T-Y. Passivity, being passive as in non-active. The term passivism is spelled differently. It's P-A-C-I-F-I-S-M, I think. I'm not a good speller. And it comes from a different word. It doesn't mean non-action, right? Um, <clears throat> this, this, it means peace, right? Pox. Peace, again, it's not necessarily passive, as in non-action. So the pacifists, those who function in gentleness, gentleness is greater than passivity because it's strong, it's firm. It's gentle, yes. It doesn't manipulate and coerce. But it also doesn't kind of compromise its place. Heresy hunting and self-control, this might be the weakest of my comparisons. But I'd done the other eight, and I felt compelled not to leave you on without with one last one. But I think so much of how we practice religion these days is kind of always stuck in our head. Right? It's, are you thinking the right thing? Right? Do you have the right belief? Do you have the right thoughts about God? And I, <clears throat> I think that that's fine, but I think we have to be careful because I think that is actually a second order issue. That at the center of all this is God and God invites us into a relationship in which we pray and we worship and we love and we serve. It's only as a second order that we back up and we start to reflect and talk about what all that is. And when we do that, I think we need a lot of latitude with each other. Maybe more than we're typically prone to give each other. And so I think we need some self-control. We, we need to get a hold of our egos and calm that sucker down. Right? And in doing so, you know, um, in, to the, in Revelation, the letter that goes to the church at Ephesus, it says, well, you're right, the Nicolaitans were wrong. But you've lost your first love. Like, to follow Jesus cannot be reduced to being able to point out that some other group's theology is wrong. Like, that's insufficient. It's just not enough. And that's exactly what Jesus says. He's like, look, unless you repent, I'm going to come and remove the lampstand. 
the presence of the Spirit will be removed from your midst. You will no longer be a church if all you think being church is is pointing out where other people are wrong. I didn't write it. But there it is. So I'm presenting this to you today as a possibility of how we all might get a bit better at discerning the times, understanding the signs of our times. Jesus told us we're not going to be very good at it, so we're going to have to practice. Somehow, I think we pay careful attention, right? Keep your eyes on Jesus. Pay careful attention to Jesus. When he says you're good at something, think, okay, I'm probably pretty good at that. When he says you're not so good at something, I think we should take him at his word. We're not so good at it. <laughs> it's going to take some practice. But then we follow him. We follow his words. Here's a baptism that he's going to be baptized with. Here's some division that he's bringing. Now, I don't want to be dismissive of Jesus' words. When Jesus says, I come to divide, you know what I think that means? I think it means he comes to divide. I really do. But we have to remember who's talking. It's Jesus' form of division. It's not the way we would divide that would eventually be destructive. It's Jesus' division. So however, whatever division, dividing he's going to do, it's not going to destroy. It's going to create. It's going to make new. It's going to make whole. Like a surgeon, when they go in and cut out cancer, that's division. They're dividing the cancer away from the rest of you. Yeah? And that division makes well. It's restorative. This is Jesus who's saying he's coming to divide. So whatever it is, we can trust that it's for our good. And not just my good, our good. Because that's who we serve. That's whose team we're on. That's who we're trying to follow. His justice is restorative. Restorative. His division is healing. It's wholesome. That's funny. Division is wholesome. I like that. Like an oxymoron. Divisive, wholesome. Wholesome, wholesome divisiveness. The work of Jesus. We hope you were blessed by today's podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support us, you can do so by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can leave us a review on iTunes, and if you want to contribute to Oasis financially, you can go to oasischurch.org. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and may God's face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen. Amen.